0: G-I-R-L-S-C-A-M-P, it's Girls Camp. Hello friends and campers, welcome back to Girls Camp and happy Wednesday. I'm your host, Haley Rall, and I'm not going to lie to you, that is the fifth time I've said that because I cannot seem to find the words for the intro today. Usually, I will only do one or two takes of this little intro blurb before an interview episode, but I'm struggling today, and I'm really hoping this is my last take. In today's episode, you will hear me become best friends in real time with today's guest, Abby Benson Schwally. Abby is so phenomenal. She's intelligent. She's insightful. She's funny. I found her on TikTok through her faith deconstruction content, and we were able to connect through the app, and she agreed to come on the podcast. I've had a lot of you campers reach out and say that you listen to Girls Camp because you have gone through a faith deconstruction or crisis or transition of your own, but not from Mormonism, usually from another Christian church. And Abby grew up Southern Baptist, and then in her high school years, she switched to a non-denominational church, and then she eventually deconstructed. And I loved talking to her so much about the similarities and the differences in our experiences of deconstruction since we come from different faith traditions. And mostly I was struck by the similarities. And I found that really healing and really special that we could find so much in common with what we've gone through, even though we come from different states with very different cultures and obviously from different religions. And it made me feel connected to anybody listening who shares the faith deconstruction thing, but from a different religion. So This episode is for you. We had a lot of fun. We geeked out about the Bible, and it's just a really special post-Mormon ex-evangelical crossover. If you don't know Abby already, you are welcome. You are going to absolutely adore her. I promise. I have a little teaser for a campfire chat, which is to say that not this weekend, but the weekend following... I am hopping a state over to interview two lovely women who have been very highly requested to come onto the podcast, and I am so freaking excited. I'm excited for these interviews. I cannot wait to share these stories, and I'm also really excited for a little getaway. Bentley is joining me on this weekend trip, and I'm just really looking forward to it. It's always nice. Nice to have a little trip planned to get you through the day-to-day. The other item on my campfire chat agenda is a recommendation for you. And this recommendation comes through one of my best friends, Tanner. They just binged so many episodes of this podcast. It is called Other World, and I've listened to a few of the episodes. I want to read you the description of the podcast. It says, "Other World tells real stories of people who have experienced something paranormal or unexplainable." So basically, people come on and share their ghost stories, their experiences with psychics or with what they thought were demons, things like that. I have really found myself analyzing a lot of things about myself and my own beliefs while listening to this. A, it's just very intriguing and entertaining, but B, it's caused me to reflect on what I think about all that shit. I think with Halloween coming up, I want to do a Mormon-flavored Halloween story episode where we kind of get into the theology of Mormonism around things like demons and the devil and ghosts, and then maybe share stories about what we learned about those things, or if any of you have any Mormon-adjacent or religious-adjacent stories about any of that stuff, I think it would be super fun, and I think there's a lot to talk about there. When you've deconstructed a belief system and you're hearing experiences about the paranormal. So, anyway, get excited for Halloween. Don't be mad at me for talking about Halloween already. I know it's barely September. I'm not jumping the gun, but this is a fun podcast to warm us up a little bit. That is all for today's intro. Thank you again so much for being here. And I hope you enjoy this conversation with Abby Benson Schwally. And we're live. Welcome, Abby. Hi. I'm really honored to have you on because A, you're amazing and you speak to theology and deconstruction so beautifully. And B, because this is a post Mormon podcast. And through this podcast, I have made connections with people who have deconstructed or had faith transitions of some sort from different religions, which I think is really special.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's really cool
0: that the experience of navigating faith transition of deconstruction, it's just a much broader connection point than I originally imagined. And then I got on TikTok and I was like, oh, there's a lot of us going through
1: it. There's a a whole community. I don't think I realized until I entered this space on TikTok, truly how many people are all going through the same thing in so many different ways. But like, there are so many of us.
0: There really are. I'm super excited to talk to you specifically because I haven't talked to anyone who has deconstructed outside of Mormonism. And I'm really excited to talk about the similarities and the differences in those journeys. Every TikTok you post, I'm like, okay, there's maybe a different flavor of kind of our religious upbringing and the religious tradition that we come from, but it resonates very deeply. And I think that's really cool to see that we can connect and relate even coming from quite different backgrounds.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That's like something I'm so excited to talk to you about too, because I have seen a lot of similarities just in the things that we've talked about and the way that we've talked about them. But of course, our journeys are so different. So I'm excited to talk about that as well.
0: It's going to be really fun. Let's start out with some context. You share on TikTok Among many things you share about theology and deconstruction. And that was kind of our connection point. I would love to have you give the little spiel, little introduction, you know, where you live what you do, what you just graduated from, just kind of the general overview.
1: Yeah, I will make a very long story short. I currently live in Nashville, Tennessee with my husband. Um, We got married in May, and I also graduated from Vanderbilt Divinity with my Master's in Theological Studies in May. And I was raised in the South. I've lived in Tennessee my entire life, and I was raised Southern Baptist, which... Never like super resonated with me, but in high school, I went to a non-denom church and got super involved there and really got swept up in the mega church of it all. Mm. Really got swept up into that, was on the track to do ministry full-time. That's what I thought I wanted to do. That's what I thought I was called to do. So I came to Nashville to go to college. I went to Belmont University, and that is really when my deconstruction began because I was introduced to academic theology for the first time. It was over the course of those four years that I like fully deconstructed and reconstructed and deconstructed and reconstructed about a million times. And it led me to just absolutely falling in love with a harm-free Christianity, a harm-free theology. And that made me want to pursue the underlying sociology of it all and the underlying cool. context of it all. And so that's what led me to go to Vanderbilt Divinity, where I got my master's of theological studies. Amazing. And you're freshly graduated. May yeah. was a big month for you. It was a really A big wedding
0: month. and a graduation. Oh, yeah. Let's start at the beginning. You said you were raised Southern Baptist, but it didn't really resonate with you. And then at some point you went to a non-denominational church. Yes. I would love to hear about your relationship with religion up until switching churches and yeah, how that plays into your story. I mean, religion is obviously a big part of your life. It's what you chose to dedicate your studies to. So from those founding moments as a child, what were your
1: interactions and
0: relationship with the Southern Baptist Church like?
1: Yeah, this is actually something that I think we have in common where our geography so heavily influenced our religion to the point where growing up, I could not tell what was culture and what was Christianity. I could not decipher that whatsoever. And so growing up, going to this like Southern Baptist church in Tennessee, you can imagine the average member was like a 65 year old white man. Like Mm. it was Whatever you're imagining in your head, like if you've ever seen Righteous Gemstones, yes, that was where I was raised. Like that was the wow. Baptist church that I went to. It was these huge productions. It was just so wild. And I think that I had a distaste for it pretty early on because my mom got divorced very, very young. Like I was two when they got divorced even as a child, I could pick up on the fact that she was not accepted into this community. I think I could feel it before I could name it as that. Mm -hmm. And I am someone who is very protective of my mom. And so I did not enjoy going to church and watching other people side-eye her. I did not like sitting through sermons that talked about how a child needs a man in the home. So that was, I think, the beginning of me feeling like these people aren't our people. And so that led me to go find a church that I felt was more welcoming and inviting. And that led me into the younger non-denom mega church space. I mean, literally their thing was come as you are. They, I mean, I found out later, they didn't really mean that. But mm-hmm. the
0: messaging. That's the, that's the yes. <laughs> right. The so, messaging, right. good way i putting
1: it. And the messaging seemed so much more inviting and warm and it felt better. I could feel that it felt better. And I, yeah, it was, it took me a while to realize that it was just as bad as not, if not worse.
0: <laughs> mm, just kind of a rebranded version yeah. of maybe what you were experiencing as a child. This is so interesting to me because I don't know a ton about it. I mean, I watched the Hillsong documentary. I'm I'm kind of fascinated by the whole mega church community and culture, But it seems like, to what you're saying, they do a really good job at advertising, at the messaging that you're speaking to. I'm curious if you feel like in that non-denominational church, do you feel like you resonated or connected more with the community and then you were taking issue with ultimately the doctrine? Or can you talk me through a little bit more what your relationship was like with that church?
1: Yeah, I mean... Something that's so interesting, I think now looking back, is really seeing truly how similar their doctrines were. The Southern Baptist Church was at least honest about it. <laughs> like you knew yeah. you knew sitting in those rows that they were not gonna accept queer people. You you didn't know that going to the non-denom church. But yeah, I would say like in those spaces, it does feel so overtly like, oh my gosh, this is where I was meant to be this whole time. This is where I was meant to come to. This feels good. And I think that I did enjoy the community of it all because I enjoyed the community aspect of it so much. It distracted me from the doctrine. Like you don't, mm-hmm. you don't have time to pay attention to the doctrine when you're in seven Bible studies and you're volunteering for 10 hours of a week. And you, you know what I mean? And uh, yeah, totally. And so I think that it was once I became very aware that these people do believe the same thing as the Southern Baptists. they're just hiding it better. They're better at hiding it. I think that's when I was like, oh, this is, this is not only bad, it is systemic and it is on purpose.
0: Mm, Yeah. And it's, it's perhaps, as you keep pointing out, it's more insidious when it's being packaged as something that is so welcoming, that is so inclusive, that is younger and more progressive when in reality, maybe at the core, it's. It's not right. exactly what it's claiming to be.
1: It's it's honestly like virtue signaling in a way. It's like, oh yeah, the guy with the tattoos and the cool hat isn't going to judge me because I've not stereotyped him as someone who's going to judge me. But he is judging me. Yeah, totally. Oh, that's such a good point.
0: It's really interesting because from a Mormon standpoint, and yes, I wanted to say as well, backing up a little bit, I very much relate to having kind of a non-traditional family in a more traditional church setting, feeling kind of othered and kind of outside, feeling like an outsider in those ways you described growing up with your mom in the Southern Baptist Church. I'm curious about when you went to this non-denominational church, you were saying that going to the Southern Baptist Church was so connected to your geography, similar to, yes, me being in Utah Mormonism was the air I breathed. It sounds like there was a similar kind of experience. Was there any shame or fallout in deciding to go to this non-denominational church, kind of switching which church you went to, or is it kind of Christianity is Christianity and we'll take it all?
1: I think the funniest part about this is my mom, although although she was pretty devout I would never say that she was like the most legalistic. Like she always kind of had this vibe of being kind of open. And so what's funny is she was totally cool with me going to my own church. Like I remember her telling me like, you know, you need to own your faith. Like this is your relationship with God, not mine. And she really pursued it. But the really funny part is the non-denom church made me super legalistic. So I was the one coming home in high school going, Mom, you're not in enough Bible studies. I was the one coming home and being like, oh, if you say that you're a Christian and you're not volunteering without getting paid, like, you're not a real Christian. Like, I was kind of crazy about it. Yeah, interesting. Oh, yeah. Interesting.
0: Let's talk about when you use the word legalistic, because I've heard you use this on TikTok. Can you explain to the listeners? I feel like that is not common jargon from Mormon upbringing. So tell us what legalistic means.
1: Okay, great question. When I say legalistic, I am meaning there is like no nuance. Like when they open the Bible, it is black and white. There is no straying from exactly what the Bible says. Yeah, just like a very hard, I'm almost like thinking like the best way that I can describe it is almost just like militaristic. Mm. No empathy, no compassion, just almost like, well, the Bible says it. So
0: sorry. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah. Yes, I'm thinking the word that's coming to my mind is pharisaical, which is interesting because, and I'm sure we'll get into this um, when we talk about kind of where you've landed now, but it is really fascinating. And I think this is a piece of many people's deconstruction is when you start maybe learning more or learning from a different perspective, you start to see some more pharisaical behavior in organized religion which is so ironic (laughs) when the whole religion is based on the teachings of Jesus Christ. And to him, it was always the Pharisees that he was calling out.
1: Oh, my husband and I talk about this too often. The irony to everyone on the outside seems so obvious, but when you're in it, there is just this blind ego. Like you just get to have the ego of always being right and never being wrong. So why would you ever question yourself when you've never been asked to before? Totally. And
0: when everything around you is confirming that you are doing the right thing, that you are right about your interpretation of the Bible. Yeah, that's Mm -hmm. so true. Very, very interesting. So when you were in the non-denominational church, it sounds like you were super, super active in it, super involved. Can you tell us more about that?
1: I think looking back, I think that it was actually so inappropriate that I had as much power as I did at that point in time. We would never let a 17-year-old run like a law office. We would never let a 17-year-old walk in and give someone surgery. But when it comes to to the theology of life and death, I'm allowed as a 17-year-old to get up with no experience and preach. Looking back, it's almost shocking that I was allowed to, with no theology education outside of church... They, they, no no reason I should be on that stage preaching to people, but yeah, I mean, when I was in high school, I had immense amounts of power. I spoke on stage almost every week, whether it was announcements or preaching. I was in the worship leadership program. I was an unpaid intern, and it turned into a paid job. I was so involved that it's it's actually amazing that I even was able to deconstruct because of how involved I was. But I actually think that that is the reason I did ultimately deconstruct because I was so devout and I was so in it. I, I gave my all to it, and then yeah, and then there was nothing left. Yeah, totally.
0: And I think when you have such a strong connection, so many connection points, it's so intertwined with your identity. You can only stay there, or you almost have to significantly deconstruct. At least what I've seen with Mormonism is sometimes the people who are able to make Mormonism work more sustainably are people who are more lukewarm or casual Mormons because it's not demanding so much of them. So there's less at stake almost. And it sounds like you had a lot at stake, like your entire identity seemed really tied up in it.
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean... I don't think that I have even like done a good enough job on TikTok explaining like I was writing on my hand Bible verses every single day. Every single Mm. day I was sending my friends worship songs. I was posting my Bible every single day. You know, like, uh, have you seen the Barbie movie? Yes. Okay. Like, you know, Ken's job is like beach. Like my job was just like, (laughs) my job was God. Like my God, my, my job was literally just God. Like I was waking up hours before school to sit there and read my Bible. And I would even tell my mom, "Mom, like, I can't have dinner with you tonight. I need to have a quiet time. It was so, how do I want to phrase this? For a religion that is supposedly about inclusivity and bringing people together and bringing people in, it actually made me such an introvert and such a hermit. And I, I ended up just turning inwards more than anything, you know? Yeah,
0: just to keep up right. with what you felt like the study and. Yeah, what you needed to do to stay connected and be a good follower of Jesus, it sounds like.
1: Right. And it was so deeply tied, also. I mean, at least my specific non denom church, I felt was so tied into like capitalist, like hustle culture. It was never enough. The finish line was always moving. Oh, you read the Bible in a year? How about next year you read it in six months? Oh, you got through this Bible study? Okay. Then why aren't you doing two? Oh, you prayed for five minutes today? why don't you try for 10 tomorrow? You could never feel like you had enough. And I think that that's what kept people coming back because they were sold this lie that they were never going to get to the finish line. They needed someone to help them and tell them what to do.
0: Wow. Yeah. It almost sounds like kind of a competitive nature too, of who's doing more, who's doing better.
1: Oh my gosh. It turned into this like, oh, she didn't finish her book for Bible study today. What are we going to do? Like it it had us turning into like mean girls.
0: Yes, because you feel like you feel justified because you don't think, oh, well, I'm judging them. You think I'm concerned for their salvation. I'm concerned for their relationship with God. Therefore, I'm entitled to say, can you believe they didn't read their Bible or in my case, their Book of Mormon? And that's a really, again, insidious is a word that comes to mind way of twisting what is supposed to be love and inclusivity, and really manipulating it to just be flat out judgment.
1: Well, what's so funny, and I, I love the way that you put that. And it's literally so funny that they are preaching a gospel that is centered around a God who loves you no matter what, quote unquote, but you mm-hmm. have to work so hard to maintain any of the relationships with the people that you have in that community. Yeah, like so true. Haley, you're not even going to believe this. I will never forget this. I was sitting. First of all, the the preacher's wife had a special small group that she would handpick girls for. So like the best of the best girls in the high school student ministry got picked to be in her special small group. And I was picked and I was overjoyed. I mean, she might as well have given me a blue ribbon that said best Christian. And of course, I will never forget us sitting in her Sunday night small group. We would meet in their house. And I remember the topic one night. The topic was, how do we tell our friends that their shirts are too low cut and that they need to cover up their breasts? And it was us going around the room and practicing how to tell each (gasps) other with love and kindness that basically Mm -hmm. they were dressed like a slut. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And and like, it's so crazy now looking back on that time and thinking, oh, we are doing such good work.
0: Yeah. This is really important. We're helping people with this.
1: And it's just like, that is like, I I was just getting taught how to bully people with the Bible.
0: Mm, Ooh, Yep. Really, truly. And it's sad too, because you're the loveliest person of all time. And I'm sure I mean, I think it speaks to the vulnerability of young people as well who really want to do good and are being told by adults who are gatekeeping, essentially doctrines, or gatekeeping who Christ is, and then flipping it that way. And then you're just doing your best, so you're going to do it because you feel like that's
1: what you should do to be a good person and to do good. Right, because I felt like the messaging that I had received was literally to put God up. I have to put others down. And now mm. looking back, like that could not be. That could not be more wrong. Like it even feels bad in my heart. Like even like saying it out loud, because it it just is so antichrist that it's it's shocking that it even took me so long to recognize its problematic nature. You know. Mm. Yeah, and I think that speaks to the power
0: of. What I see, this might be a harsh word, but as manipulation oh, to absolutely Yeah. Take someone trying to do good, and then only in retrospect can you see and it's sad and you feel that that guilt, at least I do, around, oh, I was really trying to do good. And it's really sad that I was kind of convinced by these people that I respected and admired and looked up to as spiritual leaders and was sold something that just deep down, I kind of felt wasn't right. And I'm curious for you, you're talking about this obviously in retrospect, but I'm curious if you felt any of this dissonance when you were at this non-denominational church, Mm -hmm. if you were sensing any
1: of that at this point? Towards the end of high school, I was having a lot of cognitive dissonance with some of the spiritual leaders in the church because i felt like i mean i was telling you like they were indoctrinating us so much about our behaviors that didn't even pertain to christianity but just our day-to-day behaviors and routines they had so many opinions about and so i internalized those so much that i started to look at the spiritual leaders as i got you know older and towards the end of college, or end of high school and i was like well if you guys are telling this or telling us this each week then how come Pastor Jay gets to do whatever he wants to do. And I started questioning the spiritual leaders. And the ironic part is they had a perfect answer for me. Oh, why are you putting Pastor Jay up on a pedestal? Isn't that where God belongs? People fail. No. Like it was, it was no matter any time I expressed a worry or a concern, I was immediately met with something to calm me down. And so before long, you just start thinking, well, I'm the problem for having a problem. Mm-hmm.
0: Yep, because you've been told that. In the Mormon church, what they say is perfect church, imperfect people. The exact same message, right?
1: Wow, yeah.
0: It's the exact same message, but it's the perfect almost loophole because when they are speaking for God or when they are spiritual leaders, we are to respect them. But yet when they aren't perfect or they have their own moral failings well, come on now, you know, that you don't expect people to be perfect. No,
1: it, And that's really
0: confusing.
1: Oh, absolutely. It's, it's so confusing because you start to realize that there is no accountability in that system. And it was made that way on purpose. Exactly. And they have
0: very specific messaging that everybody
1: knows, that
0: everybody's regurgitating to everybody else so that there is no accountability. Exactly. As you just said, that's exactly it. It's the perfect way to say, respect these people and do as they say. But if they don't, you know, if they have do anything wrong, well then that's just because they're people and don't put them on this pedestal. So there's really no way out. It's a really tricky trap, I think.
1: Right. And especially with the non-denominational church, you know, when you look at Southern Baptists, Methodists, Episcopals, like whatever, they all have like a set of doctrines specifically for that denomination. There, uh, there's like a hierarchy of like dioceses or whatever. And so I'm going to steal this word because I think the, it's perfect, but like the insidious nature of the non-denominational church is that there literally is no hierarchy. They have no one that they mm. are answering to. There is no one above them to say like, oh, what is happening here is really bad and horrible. They literally just get to govern themselves because you would think, oh, wonderful. There's no
0: hierarchy. That's how it should be.
1: But it maybe
0: leads to rampant lack of accountability and lack of structure, which can be very dangerous, especially when you're talking about religion, (laughs) these things that people are going to hold most important over anything else. And when there's no structure to that, that can get really complicated. Right. One thing that I keep thinking, and and maybe you spoke to this a little bit in what you just said, but growing up as a Mormon, I was always kind of taught that something more unique to Mormonism was that we believed in, I'm trying to think of, there's a scripture in the Book of Mormon, which is like another uh, scripture that Mormons adhere to and it says something along the lines of after all you can all you can do then faith will save you but there was kind of this mentality of there's a lot of things we have to do in order to be saved mm-hmm. and it's more complicated than that but that's the gist but i'm curious talking to you because i was always told as a mormon other christians think you just get saved. If you believe in Jesus, you get baptized, then you're saved. There's not much else you like have to do. So I'm curious where this maybe that's just a misunderstanding on my part, yeah. but where this need for works essentially is being justified if that makes sense? Like how are they justifying that you need to be doing so much mm. in order to be a good Christian?
1: That is like such a good question. And this is probably the first time that I'm thinking about it through that light. Okay. So yeah, I think that there, there is a way in which we talk about salvation that does kind of seem like it is, you can get saved at the, at a drop of a hat. Like it takes one prayer. You say it, all you say is like, I want Jesus in my heart. It's over. It's done. However, they see that not as the moment, they see it as the beginning of a moment. So Mm. Your salvation begins at that prayer, but to be a good Christian in a lot of people's eyes, especially the evangelicals, it is so much more based on not your beliefs, but your words, your actions, the way you speak, the music you listen to, the books you read, the people that you keep close to you, which if it was just that, I would love to talk about a Christianity and a religion that affects all of those things. Cause I think those people would be voting differently if we actually had to take that into account, mm. but, but it's actually, I, I really believe it's more of an extension of control by the churches because if, if truly all you had to do, and this is actually maybe, I don't understand this maybe about the Mormon church. Do you guys do tithing at all? We do. Mm-hmm. Okay. Cause I was going to say, I think tithing plays a huge role into it because if you don't make church essential to the Christian experience, then these people do not have to go to church every Sunday and then give you their tithe. So they have made so many parts of Christianity essential to the Christian experience. But I do think ultimately a lot of it comes down to control and greed and just this sense, again, like how I was saying earlier, it's almost like the mark continues to move. You never arrive. Mm -hmm. You never arrive as like a fully formed Christian. Like there's always more you can be doing. Yeah,
0: that is so well articulated and I think it speaks to how easily corruptible systems of religion are because they require people to need them ultimately, right? So if you say, well you have what you need inside and if you, you know, believe in Jesus and give your life to him, you're saved well, then people are done. They don't need to give their money. Like you're saying, they don't need to pay tithing. They don't need to dedicate their time and energy. And that's why it's difficult to have systems of religion that are completely pure because really, truly, at least what I believe and I I sense from what you've said on TikTok, you believe something similar is religion and belief is a deeply personal thing and it's deeply meaningful, but it is deeply personal and then when you have a system ascribed to that, it gets tricky really fast for all those reasons you just described.
1: Oh, absolutely. It almost feels like at times the church created a problem so that they could be the solution. Mm-hmm.
0: Perfectly summed up.
1: Like just, just for that sole reason. And, and because we both live in places where, again, geography plays such a huge role in this religion that it not only turns into, okay, the church is, you know, wanting control and power, but then you end up like keeping tabs on each other. Like, Oh, did you see who didn't come to church this week? It's just so, you know, so much a part of the culture. It's honestly still funny to me that I can get away with every Sunday making a, a video on TikTok that says things I did this morning instead of going to church. It's still so funny to me that that is still radical content to people.
0: Oh, yeah.
1: you know, And people resonate with it because people
0: still feel deeply guilty to not be attending church on a Sunday. Right. Which really, truly, when you take a step back and look at it, why would that be so integral to one's faith and one's goodness?
1: Mm-hmm. It just...
0: It doesn't really make sense. But when you're so deeply ingrained in these systems that say these are the things that you have to do to prove your faith, to prove your dedication to goodness, it's really difficult to deconstruct and unpack that idea. And you point out such an important point, which is it's not only the church, but the churches then start to function as a metric for society to say, are you a good christian aka a good person well you're not going to church so you must not be
1: right it's almost like the church has gotten other christians to do their dirty work for them
0: Mm, yep and they will (laughs) and they do and trust that they will (laughs) yeah believe us we Mm -hmm. see the tiktok comments come rolling in oh yeah they're certainly doing the job oh yeah (laughs) Oh my gosh, I'm going to need you to come on a million times more because I have a billion more questions I could ask. But I really want to get into your deconstruction, which you said began as you began to study theology. So you go to school for theology, you got your degree in theology, and then a master's. I want to hear about what you were learning that started your deconstruction and what that all felt like.
1: Yeah. So what's so funny about Belmont is it's a private Christian school, quote unquote. It is a private Christian school. But I would say that 99% of the people that go there are just people who want to be musicians. Literally, I was one of the few people on Belmont's campus that were not doing music. And so- Mm, Because you're in Nashville. Yeah. Right. So what's funny about it is that although it's marketed as like a private Christian college, That isn't really the vibe of it just because of the student population. And so my classes, like when people hear that I went to a private Christian school and learned about religion, I think that they are imagining a very different experience than what took place because what really took place is that I went to a more of a liberal arts college that taught a really progressive, academic, rigorous theological uh, program. And so Mm -hmm. the thing that began my deconstruction is part of that program. If you're going to be in the college of theology, you have to take a biblical language. So the old Testament was written in Hebrew. The new Testament is written in Greek and you got to choose which one you wanted to do. And I decided to go with Greek because I am very interested in the person of Jesus. And that is where the stories of Jesus are really a lot of them are in the new Testament. So I had to take Greek for two years for, it was four semesters, two years. This is half of my time at college was spent learning Greek. And I will never forget the very first day of Greek, my very first day of college. I'm sitting there and my professor is like, I want you all to take everything you know about the Bible and throw it out the window. This is not going to be the place this, that we do Sunday school. This is not going to be the place. Of, well, my mom has said but that is not what we do here. We are looking at the Bible as an academic text. And I sat there and I learned that the word V, that simply the word V can be translated in 26 different ways. Wow! I started to realize that each version of the Bible came with the bias of the person who translated it. It came with the context uh, that the person came from when they're translating. It just became so supremely obvious to me that this was a text that had been touched by so many human hands And it had always been marketed to me as something that had never seen human hands. And so the veil began to fall off about its, you know, its divine inspiration and its perfection and it's all of that. And, you know, my homework every week was I would take a verse from the Greek Bible and I'd have to translate it into English. And I'm going to tell you right now, every single week, I would not have the same translation as the person sitting next to me. Wow. Wow. And so it just became so obvious that so much of religion is just personal bias and choice. And that is really what began the deconstruction for me. Wow.
0: I could geek out about this so hard for so long. I, I studied literature. So I studied English literature and I studied at BYU. So there was a little bit of crossover into religion, but not a ton. But it is so interesting to me what you just said. There's so much there. I spent my whole academic career looking at a sentence or a line of prose and saying, what does this mean? What does the author bring to this? Who is the author? What was their upbringing? And that's not even considering language and translation, which is a whole nother layer. And there is so much richness and beauty in doing that. And just to think that religion in a lot of ways, in my opinion, almost stripped away the ability to partake in the richness that is personal interpretation.
1: You just put that so beautifully. Yes. 100 times. Yes.
0: Yes. Thank you. That came to me as you were speaking because I think how beautiful that you could take a verse of a text that has so much historical richness, so much literary richness, and you could read it in Greek, which is Incredible that you know that language and you could translate it Mm -hmm. and it could be different than the person sitting next to you and to me how much more that speaks to the beauty of a text like the Bible as opposed to what you were saying your whole upbringing was what my whole upbringing was which is this one person said this is what it means and therefore this is how you must act and behave and live your life that's so restrictive And it's so authoritarian. There's so much about that that feels so sad when there can be so much beauty and richness from having a text that means something to you and being able to interpret it in in the way that you described you were able to.
1: Right. And, And I feel like what's so funny about that is I was told growing up, you know, you can't lean on your own understanding. That was like a thing that was said a lot. You don't, you can't lean on your own understanding. And then I get to a theology degree and they're literally grading me on my own understanding. A hundred percent. Like it was just hysterical. And what's so funny also about going through this process was every day leaving class, I would call my mom on my way back to my dorm and tell her what I'm learning and tell her all these things. And she's telling me on the other end of the phone, I've never heard that before. I've never heard that before. Wait, it says what in the Bible? What? And I realized that, because of the pastor and congregation model, they are banking on the fact that you are not going to do your own research. They are telling you, don't listen to to yourself. They're banking on the fact that you're not going to check them and that you're not going to look things up for yourself. Because when you actually do, and you go to college for this, a lot of things start not making sense. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. having these conversations with my mom actually prompted her to start interrogating her own beliefs, saying, I've been in church for three decades. Why is my daughter, who's been in college for a single week, telling me more about God than I've heard every Sunday for the last 30 years?
0: Woof. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Ooh. I'm curious what this felt like for you. And I'm sure there's a lot of other stages to this deconstruction journey, but even at the beginning, when you start to see, oh, this is maybe different than I thought or than I was told, what was the
1: emotional response to that? So what's really funny is that they basically had built a class into all of our schedules, all of the College of Theology kids, where we dealt with that cognitive dissonance because they all knew that all of these kids who think they're going to come to Tennessee and get a theology degree they're probably going to get their shit rocked when they learn all of this stuff. So we need to, we need to, you know, put a little buffer in their schedules where they get to talk about this. So there was like a freshman year class that was required for all of us to take no textbooks, no homework. You showed up for an hour and a week to talk about these things. I think because I got to deconstruct in the group it was interesting because the, the pros and cons were it felt like I was still doing religion, but had just switched out all the language for deconstruction. Like I was mm. it was still felt like small group and it still felt like we were just still um, comparing ourselves to each other on our faith journeys, which was interesting. But my college did kind of make room for that where we got to talk through those things. But I would say the feelings of deconstruction for me came on a lot more during the pandemic because I was doing all of my theology work by myself. Mm. And that felt more difficult. I was living by myself at a one bedroom apartment and I'm like doing Zoom every day for school. And then I'm having to write these papers that were blowing my mind and I didn't get to talk about it with anyone. And it felt super hard in the moment. But in a way, it forced me to trust myself. It forced me to have to let me be enough. And I think it made me better. Like It made me better and it made me feel stronger in my ethics and my morals and my beliefs. So yeah, there's been so many stages of this deconstruction and they've all been so different. But ultimately, I think they all had to happen in the way that they did to get me to where I am right now exactly as I sit here on this podcast with you.
0: Yeah. Wow. Oh, that's super interesting to think about that need, because I think that's part of deconstruction to say, okay, now maybe I could believe this professor, or now I could believe this group of people who have also deconstructed. But really, you said it perfectly. That's just shifting that reliance to a different group. That's just shifting that reliance to a different authority. And it's really hard not to do that when you're on such unsure footing, when the foundation of your life has kind of been pulled out from under you. Oh yeah, (laughs) And you just want to find people or someone to say like, this is the way to do it now. But I think that's so important. And I see that in the way that you speak about theology now is that there's a level that I sense of confidence and comfort and a lack of a need to say this is the right way, but to say this is where I'm at and this is how I feel. And I think that's why so many people resonate with what you say, because you're coming from a really authentic place and sounds like you did the work to get there.
1: Oh yeah. And like, I'm still doing the work. Like I have to check myself constantly because I know that Because Christianity taught me how to have an ego, I can get an ego about no longer being with Christianity. And I think like, there are still so many things that I still struggle with when it comes to theology and deconstruction. And so, yeah, anytime I share something, it really is from a place of like, I have never been more aware that there is so much I don't know. In this moment, this feels truer than the last time I thought about this or the last thought I had about this thing. This new feeling feels truer than that. So I want to share this newer, truer thing. Totally, yeah.
0: And be willing to change and grow and be willing to be vulnerable about what you just said, I think is also huge in the space. Do you know Dan McClellan on TikTok? No, who is this? Okay, you'll be obsessed with him. He's a very interesting character. I just found him. He's actually an active Mormon, which blows my mind. Because he is a Bible scholar and on TikTok, he will stitch like a lot of different Christian TikToks. And in a very kind of neutral way, he will just debunk what the person is saying, essentially, with a lot of what you're talking about, with actually the translation of this means this. And he just has a very interesting, but I think really compelling way of going about it. Mm -hmm. But since discovering him, I've been thinking so much about the power of this knowledge you're talking about. You now know, you've studied it for your degree, for your master's. You have a lot of data, real, true history, science, data, facts. How do you now reconcile that with belief? How do you reconcile that with the fact that there are still believers? Is it because they don't know the things you know? Is it because... They maybe do know the things you know, but have chosen different belief. I know that you still identify in a lot of ways as a believer. This is the most convoluted question of all time. (laughs) I'm curious what comes up for you as someone who has studied religion in an academic setting. Now that you have this knowledge set, Mm -hmm. how do you see the interplay between knowledge and faith?
1: I literally could write a master's thesis on that question. That is... You should. Yeah, that is... There's so much there. That's such a good question. I would say that anytime I talk about being deconstructed online, I always get this question and I'm sure you get this a lot too. Very first one. Are you still a Christian? Do you call yourself a Christian? Do you still, but but do you still believe in God though? It's like, they can't, they can't figure out how to react to what you're saying until you give them an identity and then they can figure out what to do with it and what to do with you. And something yep, a label.
0: Yeah, they need a label. Yeah, they,
1: they need one. Because for so many people, there is a piece that comes with the label. I am a Christian. I am an atheist. I am da 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 da. But like, for me, it's just like so much more than that. I'm like, yeah, on Tuesday, I might feel like a Christian. Today, I might not. It is something that I am constantly interrogating within myself. And I know that at times it might come across as wishy washy of like, oh, well, she said she was a Christian in this video, not in this one. It's literally just my attempt at being like, okay, like, what do I feel today? Do I feel like Christianity speaks to my experience? Maybe today it does. I've been, I've been coining the term theologically fluid because that's how I feel Love it. more often than not. And I will say that my education has made it harder for me to have compassion for people. I will say that up front. That's the, the hard part of getting a theology degree is I sit there and look at the information as it is presented. And I say, how the hell could you see what I am seeing and then go sit through a church service every Sunday? It has made me view people differently. And that has been really hard because an ethic of mine that I want to choose is compassion. That is even towards people that I disagree with. And that is something that is so hard for me to find at times. But ultimately what I come back to is... I am at, With every video that I post, I am asking Christians to open their worldview and maybe accept something that they believe is wrong and harmful. And if I am going to sit there every Sunday and ask Christians to do that, how can I turn around and hate them? hmm and so that mm-hmm. is something that I am still even working through is I have so much animosity towards people still going to megachurches. I have so much anger towards people who are still in this life and, and still in that world. I can see the stats of the teens who are raised in these homes who grow up to end their life. I have seen the stats of homeless youth that come from these uber Christian homes. Like it's it's hard when I'm looking at the cold, hard facts But on the other hand, there's people like my mom, who goes to church every Sunday, sings her little heart out in worship, prays for me every single day, and is the best person I have ever met in the entire world. And that's where sometimes I think, oh, if God is real, God is challenging my worldviews. And I I have to pay attention to that.
0: Yeah, that gave me full body chills from head to toe. Really, truly. I'm so appreciative of so much you said there. I think the concept of theological fluidity is something I haven't been able to pinpoint myself. Mm -hmm. And hearing that from someone like you, who I respect and admire, who I think knows a lot more about all of this than I do. It feels like permission that I have been denying myself in a lot of ways. Mm. And especially when you talk about it publicly, as you are doing, as I am starting to do, there is there's pressure on all sides. There's pressure from every single person who is showing up to your page with their own background And I'm sure just as many people who are Christian and are upset at you for deconstructing a traditional version of Christianity, there are people who are mad at you if you say you still identify as Christian and they say you're dumb and brainwashed. And being able to manage all of those pressures, and even if you're not talking about it publicly, managing that from family and society is really difficult. And I think it's a really beautiful, really compassionate place to land to say, why do I have to label it? Mm
1: -hmm. Why?
0: If that doesn't feel right to you, then you shouldn't have to. And I really appreciate that permission. And I think so many people deconstructing will really appreciate that because sometimes you don't know and it changes. And sometimes a Mormon will say something to me and I'm like, fuck Mormonism. And then the next day I'm like, Mormons are great. I'm so grateful for my upbringing and they're the best people I know, but I just don't identify that way anymore. It's a roller coaster and I think it always will be. To your point, is that not kind of the goal, right? Is to say I'm not going to say anymore this is for certain what I think because when we did that, we found out that there's danger in doing that.
1: Well, right. And and what's so interesting is that in every other in every other identity that you can hold, whether it is the color of your skin your gender expression your sexuality there has there has been a, a discussion about oh binaries don't work like you can't just say that you, you can't just have the two options on the standardized test say check check yes if you're white check yes if you're black that's too binary it, it's it's like it's not just gay or straight there's an entire spectrum it's not just girl or boy there's another option There are hundreds of other options and I'm just waiting for us to get there in the religious space because yeah, like if the two options are Christian and atheist, neither fully get it for me. And, and like, if I, if I'm not willing to put God in a box, like I'm sure as shit, not willing to put myself in one.
0: Yeah. Amen.
1: And so like, yeah, like theologically fluid that feels like the most honest answer I can give for how I feel and how I identify. Yeah.
0: I think that's really important. And I think the fact that you consider yourself in some way deconstructed as well, but still not putting that label on it as far as where you've landed, I think is really important because deconstruction is just a very unique experience. Religious Mm -hmm. deconstruction, especially when you were as deeply in it as you were. And to me, that's even more powerful because there's, you know, you've kind of, you've been all places, (laughs) you really have. And that to me feels really important. And I think what you're saying is a theme I've just been noticing lately more and more where people are really craving a spectrum of belief, of fluidity, as you put it so well. I feel like perhaps I'm biased because of what I'm doing and what I see, but I feel like there feels almost like a collective movement toward that and toward people who are feeling disenchanted with organized religion, but are still hanging on to some of the tenets of spirituality that they pulled from the religions of their upbringing. And it can be a difficult thing to do in a world that is built especially with belief and religion around those binaries.
1: Oh my gosh. Yeah. Like you said it so perfectly.
0: Yes. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> I need to fly to Nashville and move next door no, because you I just to. feel like it's really crazy. The similarity. I, I think I was expecting more differences and I'm sure we could like dig into that mm-hmm. at another time, but really The similarities are very striking and again, special because it feels like, oh man, we live in different places. We had these different religious traditions and different cultures around those religious traditions, but really that experience of finding out that something is not what you thought it was and that something is something you built your entire life and identity around, that's going to resonate across religious traditions because that's a very unique and very powerful experience and very powerful connection point.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And there are so many things that I yeah that I see similar between us. But I if you don't mind, I know that you're supposed to be interviewing me, but yeah. can I ask no, you a question? please.
0: a hundred percent. Something
1: that I find that's super interesting when I think about you and your husband is that like luckily enough when John and I met, like when my husband and I met I was, you know, I was a senior in college. So I was pretty far along this deconstruction journey. Um, mm. And So when John and I met, we were like both kind of already in the same place. And so we didn't have to deconstruct together. And mm. what I think is so interesting about your story is that you didn't only deconstruct by yourself. You all deconstructed together. So I'm so mm-hmm. interested to hear about that because I can imagine, you know, for whoever between you all felt it first, I'm sure that that pit probably stayed in y'all's stomach for weeks. Like I just, I can't imagine how vulnerable that conversation might've been. Mm. So like, I just want to yeah. know what that was like because yeah. I, I didn't have to experience that. Yeah, yeah,
0: thanks so much for asking. I honestly think the credit is to my partner Because deconstruction, there was a lot of things, but one of the biggest kind of first points of deconstruction for me around Mormonism was that women are not given the same power of God, what we call the priesthood, that we don't speak about a heavenly mother, we only speak about a heavenly father. It was kind of women's issue related. And so when I brought that up to my husband, he was like, oh, As a man, I didn't notice that or I didn't think about that. And he appreciated me pointing out to him an inequity that I don't think he would have seen otherwise, which I think took a little bit of that sting almost away from it because for him, he was almost, he was just appreciative that I was kind of showing him something that I was noticing that was maybe a blind spot for him. And then that sort of set the tone for us where I think, we were able to learn from each other as we deconstructed, oh, what about this thing? How do we feel about tithing? Well, actually this, oh yeah, well actually that. It became more conversational and almost like collaborative in a way that I'm just so appreciative of. And although I feel like I'm kind of the one maybe who led that a little bit, I feel that my husband was more grateful because he appreciated that I was pointing out things to him that when I told him, he was like, yeah, that's not right. So thanks for telling me, which for someone to do with the deep indoctrination is a really big deal. And it's something I love so much about my partner is that he's really good at doing that, which I don't think I would have been as good at had it been role reversed.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, hearing that, It's so interesting because I'm thinking like the bravery that it took for you to say it, but also the bravery it took for him to listen. Like, Mm -hmm. and I think that because you all honored each other's bravery, like that's how you guys got to like do this in a collaborative way, you know? Mm.
0: Yeah. I appreciate you saying that. That's a really lovely way to put it. And it's just kind of what you were saying before with when you speak about Christianity on TikTok is just hoping that a response would be, oh, maybe this person's experience is different than mine, and what can I learn from them? Where so often it feels like a threat, and people get immediately defensive, as opposed to saying, oh, this might be new information about something. And even though that information might feel initially alarming because it challenges my worldview, what can I learn? And I appreciate that example in my husband Mm -hmm. and on the internet, that is so often not the case where you feel like you're just, if anything, trying to offer an alternative perspective and it's viewed frequently as an attack on people's identity even, which is what makes it so complicated.
1: Yeah, I will say one of my favorite videos of yours, was actually how I found you. Was mm. you had you had stitched someone? Um, it mm. was that viral video. The
0: terrible person. Yes,
1: yeah. it, I guess you know there was a girl sitting in her car that was like, "If you make fun of someone's religion, you are a terrible person." And you stitched it, and it, it was just like the way that you spoke. You were direct, and you were kind, and you said what you needed to say, and you didn't sugarcoat it or make it extra sweet. You just like said that you Mm -hmm. needed to say. And like just your the way that you showed up in that video, you just came across so confident. And and I just I loved the way that you spoke about those things and I loved the way that you held your own. And like that's just how I found you. And so it's like it's so funny hearing this and like having this conversation with you now because I yeah, I so admired how you had that conversation. And yeah, I just I think you're awesome and so smart and thank you. Obsessed with you. Oh my gosh. That means the most coming from you. That's funny you say
0: that because I look to you as an example of staying in the space without getting really jaded, which is hard. And I'm new to this space. I'm new to talking about this publicly. And I find myself, especially as I've grown a little more, as you have more reach, you get more hate comments. You get more of that. And looking to you as someone who talks about this and i don't mean to say that there's there needs to be positivity necessarily but i feel like it comes back to what i was saying before you have a sense of assuredness in who you are in why you're talking about what you're talking about and in a willingness to continue to learn and to grow Mm -hmm. And that is super helpful for me to kind of realign myself when I start just feeling pretty mad (laughs) at people and not even again, that I feel like there's not, there is space for anger. And I know you have that as well. You've spoken to that really well here too, but remaining aligned for our own sakes, Mm -hmm. right? Not -hmm. because we have to make it pretty or kind for everyone else, but because that's who we want to be. And knowing that when you talk about it publicly and certain responses can make it difficult to do that. And I look to you as just a phenomenal example of that alignment. And I see you have a presence of kindness, not because you're trying to sugarcoat it because you're a very kind person. And I can feel that. And I think for the deconstruction space, that's a really big deal.
1: Well, that like means so much because I think just thank you for that. That was very sweet. And yeah. I of appreciate course. that. I mean it. You were even like asking this earlier, like how how does it feel to deconstruct? Like they can be scary. And I think that honestly, I do want to keep showing up in this space to show that just because you have lost a religion, that does not mean that you then walk through the world with like the stages of grief. There is joy to be found on the other side of deconstruction. Like there is peace to be found on the other side of deconstruction. It is not just this horrible, scary thing. It it can feel unnerving for a little bit, but, you know, being uncomfortable never killed anyone. And and so like, I just want to show people that there is a joy and a warmth on this side of things. It's not just like doom and
0: gloom, you know? Absolutely. 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 I love that so much. And there is, I think, a tendency sometimes post deconstruction to lean into a more nihilistic approach to life and to existence. And that might work for some people, but it doesn't feel good to me. It feels really healing to find people who have deconstructed and just found a different space to inhabit. Mm -hmm. And it feels like there are people who are craving that and looking for that. And I feel that. And so to be creating online spaces, that kind of tone you just talked about, people can feel that I think is a really big deal for people because a lot of people are in the trenches, right? And you were describing that there's people in the trenches that need to see I've been there too. And yeah, it's not that it's gets it never goes away necessarily, but it gets easier. It gets sustainable. And there is peace and there is joy Mm -hmm. because in the midst of it, it doesn't always feel like that for people.
1: Oh no. Like, and it's so funny because I would say the majority of the comments that I get, um, on my theology talks, I'd be interested to hear if you get these, but so many of them are just like, how do I tell my family? Like, just so like petrified of like, how do I tell them this horrible thing? And I've said this before, but you know, it, it feels at times like you almost have to like come out as deconstructed. Yeah, absolutely. You, you have to come out. And I get that there is so much fear and trepidation that I totally get that. But I want people to hear from my page that small amount or that, that short temporary fear. I would choose that temporary fear over a lifetime of fear staying in the church. Absolutely.
0: Amen to that. That is so, so well put. That's what's on the other side, right? Is liberation Mm -hmm. from that fear Mm -hmm. that I think so many people feel. And that if you've been in that space, you know, like I know exactly what you're talking about when you refer to that. Mm -hmm. I really, truly could talk to you forever. (laughs) I'm so glad to have connected with you. And it feels like such a gift to have your presence online, to have you here on the podcast. I would love to have you on again. And I think we could just take a topic. I want to get more into your wealth of knowledge. We could just take literally a Bible verse and just unpack it. I think would be so much fun.
1: Oh my gosh. (laughs) I love shit like that. No, literally same. And like, let me just say, like, I have loved talking to you so much that I have forgotten at times that we're even recording. Like I have literally just forgotten that we're doing a podcast and just hear me say, whenever you want me back, like I am here, I am ready. Cause I love talking about this with you. It's so fun to talk about theology with people who have had a similar journey because yeah, it's just, it's very, it's very exciting. And I, I just love talking to you.
0: Me too. Me too. I feel like I miss one thing I miss about church and school Is the ability to just talk about concepts. Mm. And that was one thing I think connected me to church in a lot of ways is because we would talk about repentance. And that's a really fascinating concept. Mm. And it was fun to kind of talk about things conceptually. And then in church, I found there was kind of limits on how far you could go. So to be on this side of things where there's no limits, you can just dig into these concepts and what they mean philosophically and for society. There's just so much. There that I think is endlessly fun and fascinating to talk about, and I love talking about it with people like you who have so much education because it just adds fuel to like the conceptual fire of what can be discussed. <laughs> so I would love that more than anything, and I would love to come to Nashville and meet you in person. That'd be so fun to record in person. I too. say we'll do a live, we'll do a live
1: one. Oh, in Nashville. yes,
0: my. Oh, a hundred percent. Seriously.
1: Oh yeah, You're the best.
0: Thank you so, so, so much. And yes, this will, this was the first time, but it will not be the last time, but so appreciated and can't wait to stay
1: in touch. Yeah. And like, just, I wanted to say again, thank you so much for having me on. Thank you for inviting me into your space. You are just the loveliest and I'm so happy that we get to be friends.
0: Me too. I feel the same way about you and thank God for TikTok is the final word because I was telling Bentley, my husband, I was like, literally TikTok, it's TikTok, but the power of that app to connect. I mean, look, look who it connected. Right. Like twin flames across the country. It's just such a cool tool. So I'm very grateful for that and very grateful for you. Thank you so much again and talk soon.
1: Yeah. Talk soon. Bye.
0: Bye. G-I-R-L-S-C-A-M-P.